Good morning and welcome to Reflections. I'm Zachariah, I've got Derek right over here, and today is August 4th, 2020. We made it to August, so summer is winding its way down. But uh, before we finish off our summer, we are continuing our reflection in The Color of Compromise. Today we're reading in uh, Chapter 2, Making Race in the Colonial Era, which was definitely a very informational um, chapter. But before that, I'm going to read Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, just to kind of put us in a mindset. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And now I'll toss it over to Derek with his uh, summary of Making Race in the Colonial Era. So, Jamar Tisby names his second chapter, Making Race in the Colonial Era. So naturally, the purpose of this chapter is to help us understand this thing we call race and how it was made. And of course, reminder, this is a historical survey, and historical surveys show us how certain things change and develop over time. So Tisby puts us in the time period between the 1500s to the 1800s. In the 1500s, the color of a person's skin did not necessarily predetermine a person's station and role in Western society. This is on page 26. But by the 1800s, things have changed, and we see that Western settlements and states have laws and systems and regulations about a person's skin color and their relationship to religion, economics, and schooling, and the society at large. This is what Tisby means when he says on page 27 that race is a social construct. Our ancestors constructed this system. A system where, for example, a state law can be written that says a master can baptize those whom they have enslaved without having to free them. There's nothing written in our genetic codes that requires such a law to exist. There's no line in the Bible that requires a society to have enslaved people. Racism was not inevitable, Tisby says. It was a series of terribly wrong choices made by Europeans, early Americans, for hundreds of years. Tisby goes on to provide us with example after example of these heinous choices by recounting disturbing accounts of the first European contacts with indigenous people, accounts of the violent process of kidnapping and forcing more than 10 million African people across the Atlantic on torturous death ships, and regrettable, to say the least, accounts of the beginnings of the slave trade in early settlements. So much of these wrong choices, as you read these accounts, are motivated by prophets and religious hubris. If only wealthy white colonizers and plantation owners prioritized the lives and the dignity of those foreign to them over the economic benefits of unpaid labor, and if only European Christians realized that European did not mean Christian, and conformity to European culture was not, in fact, evangelism, things would have been quite different. Tisby 
ends with a note of hope. If race was constructed over hundreds of years of wrong choices, then it is up to us now to deconstruct this vicious system with our right choices. So, Zachariah, do you have any uh, thing you want to reflect on for this chapter? Something that stuck out to me was that the theme that I, I feel like stuck out from this chapter was how white Europeans suspe- specifically pardon me, chose the parts of Christianity that they wanted to keep and conformed the rest of Christianity to their own culture and specifically their own culture of just making more and more money. Like that, what Derek had mentioned, that they changed Christianity to say that if you just because you're baptized does not mean that you should be free. Like something like that. Um, specifically, when I was reading, the uh, narrative of Olada Equiano um, stuck out to me. Um, he was specifically one of the people that uh, survived those slave ships. And he wrote. The interesting narrative of the life of Olada Equiano or Gustavus Vasa and kind of documents what it was like on those horrifying ships, treating people like cattle, moving them from Africa over to this side of the hemisphere. What he, Something that he wrote specifically stuck out to me, and I'm just going to go ahead and quote it because he wrote it much better than I can translate it. This is on uh, page 30. By the time he wrote his autobiography, Equiano had converted to Christianity. As he reflected on his life, he viewed his experiences through the lens of his faith and commented on the hypocrisy of slave traders who claimed to be Christian. Recollecting on the repeated rape of African women by slave traders aboard the ship, Equiano wrote that this was a disgrace not only of Christians but of men. I have even known them to gratify their brutal passions with females not yet 10 years old. On the kidnapping of unsuspecting Africans and their separation from family, Equiano asked, O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God, who says unto you, do do unto all men as you would men should do unto you? Black people immediately detected the hypocrisy of American-style slavery. They knew the inconsistencies of the faith, from the rank odors, the chains, the blood, and the misery that accompanied their life of bondage. Instead of abandoning Christianity, though, black people went directly to the teachings of Jesus and challenged white people to demonstrate integrity. So definitely not easy to hear, not easy to read, but it is part of our history as American Christians. This is the kind of thing that we need to deconstruct. This kind of evil that our ancestors in the faith committed. And I think Tisby specifically hits it right on the head. Black people went directly to the teachings of Jesus and challenged white people to demonstrate integrity. Sometimes we need to be called out, especially as white Christians. I know growing up that I didn't really know any of this. Learning it in college and learning it in in seminary, like these are things that I need to learn in order to, like in the last chapter, repent, leading to reconciliation, leading to equality. This is the kind of thing that I think we, why we read these books, so that we can learn about our history, the bad parts, lots of bad parts, and the good stuff, 
But we have to take our history and move forward. We have to follow Jesus into the future of reconciliation and love. And I think that is what Jamar Tisby hits on the head. Derek, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're completely right. We need to be called out. And I think two of the major, um, I guess, themes or major points of sin I see in these accounts um, are the greed for profit, like you mentioned. Um, The owners wanted their unpaid labor. It was much more efficient, get way more money, obviously, if somebody works for you for free. Um, So love of money is one vice that is being called out. The other vice is the conflation of European cultural norms with Christianity. And, and to me, that's, that's a sign of pride. That's thinking, oh, you know what? We've got it right. We know what we're doing. God has chosen the European people. And we are the ones now who are going to bring this. And everybody has to conform to us. <laughs> that to me is hubris. It's pride. Um, there's no empathy there. There's no understanding for another people. There's only, you know, violent uncaring, forceful attempts to convert other people. That's what I see in these accounts. And so today, I think what's being called out, of course, racism is this big thing. And of course, we need to be less racist. And I'm not saying that, you know, greed and religious hubris are the reasons why racism exists. But those are intimately tied to racism. And I think if there's anything that we can work on in our day and age, any right choice we can make to correct these hundreds and thousands, millions of wrong choices. It's to think about, one, our love of money and wealth and comfort, and two, think about how we might have conflated our Christianity, our belief in God, with our culture, with what we're used to. I think culture, some, you know, there's whole bunch of ways you can explain it the way I think of it um, can't remember what book this is from but they, they describe culture as um, ways of living uh, practices of a community how your community how your society lives life and religion is a central part of culture and it's hard it's hard to distinguish you know what is Christianity, what is my religion, and what is my culture. But it's on us, I think, to be deeply self-reflective and consider seriously what might be cultural and what might be of God. And that's, that's why I wanted to include that passage from Romans 12 too. I think Paul is aware of this. He knows the temptation to conflate your religion, conflate your belief in God with your culture, what you're used to, right? And he calls the people who lived in who lived in Rome in a culture heavily inundated with Greek mythology and life, he called them to be above that. He didn't ask them to conflate their belief in God with Greek culture. No, he says do not be conformed to this world, 
You are the image of God. You're not the image of Caesar or anyone else on this world. You are a citizen of heaven. So the application, I think, as we close down this session of reflections is to reflect. Reflect on these two vices, um, which taints all of us. Our love for money. I'm reminded of what Jesus says. You cannot serve both God and mammon and money and wealth. It's one or the other. And two, when's the last time you reflected on the relationship between Christianity and American culture? How, how does that play out in your life? It's a, it's, there's a lot of gray areas between the two. And the more we think about it, the more we consider it, the more we put it on the front of our minds, the clearer, I think, those lines will become. So, Zachariah, would you pray us out? Of course. Lord, we pray for the strength to listen to our past and the wisdom to walk into the future. We repent of the sins of our ancestors and pray for a future filled with your glory, one where all people stand before you in love and equality and humility. Thank you for your grace and let us walk in your grace to become more loving to those around us. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Blessings.